secular oratory. Uh, for the adults who come uh, to the oratory to be nourished in the faith and to continue our education in the faith. And over these past few years in particular, we've been looking at uh, the Eucharist, uh, since it is uh, the source and summit of our faith and of our faith life. And certainly here at the oratory with the perpetual adoration, it has become a very significant part of our, our spiritual life as well, and something that has helped us to be nourished and grow in the faith, grow as a community as well. And so uh, we're continuing along these lines uh, tonight as well. Over the past few months, we've been looking at uh, a writer from back uh, in the early 20th century, Romano Guardini, a Catholic priest who wrote uh, before the Council, actually before the Second Vatican Council, but wrote a beautiful work called Meditations Before Mass. And uh, it's not so much a theological view uh, of the Holy Eucharist as well, except, uh, but rather uh, the spirituality of the Eucharist and then how we enter into the celebration of the Eucharist, how we can enter into it more fully. And so if you remember, if you've been here over the last couple of months, we've started not with externals in terms of liturgical renewal, but what kind of renewal must take place first within our own hearts. So Guardini begins with stillness and then silence, and then tonight we'll be speaking about the fruit of those two, which is what he calls composure, that often we struggle with distractions of our day-to-day -day life, with things that are good and bad, and uh, we often become fragmented in our thinking, very distracted, and so it becomes difficult for us to prepare ourselves to enter in 
to the holy mystery of Mass. And so how is it that after we've stilled ourselves and silenced our hearts, then do we foster a composure that allows us to be aware of what is going on in our surroundings in a very intense and focused way? How do we step out of the distraction of our own minds and the world around us in order to be able to enter into and participate in the mystery that is before us? Uh, Guardini is a beautiful writer, uh, eloquent, and uh, but uh, very readable and accessible. And so I think uh, with me you probably enjoy hearing him uh, each month, and it's uh, very rich in content. So we're going to pick up this evening. The italicized print is just uh, a synopsis I wrote of the chapter. I'll go through that fairly quickly. And then, as always, we want to treat this as a kind of group Lexio Divina, uh, sort of a slow, uh, thoughtful reading, prayerful reading of the text. So don't hesitate to stop me to offer comments or questions along the way. Composure. The precious fruit of silence and of stillness gained is composure. Regardless of our station in life, married, lay, or religious, we are capable of being fragmented internally by the constant noise and distractions of our surroundings. Composure is the restoration of our inner unity in the spirit and the reestablishing of the soul in its depths. The growing artificiality of existence only compounds the dissipation of modern man. Bombarded by disconnected, contradictory, and dis disturbing impressions, people gradually lose touch with reality itself and become detached from all moral and spiritual mooring. Cast about and disquieted, even a moment of silence leaves a person feeling lost or unbearably vulnerable. This can be seen in the bearing of men and women at Mass. Guardini describes it vividly. They are not really present. They do not vitally fill the room an hour. They are not composed. Only the composed person is fully alive, fully human, really someone. This means true awareness, that inner knowledge of the essential, that ability to make responsible decisions, sensitivity, readiness, joie de vivre. I'm sorry for those who speak French. <laughs> that is the joy of life, if you're wondering what that is. Again, composure, like stillness and silence, arises not spontaneously, but through preparation, the humble acknowledgement of the disorder within us, and ascetic efforts to rein in our thoughts and transform our passions. Composure is to be desired because it is a reflection of something far greater, of the eternity deep within us. It is the very ground of our soul and the peak of the spirit. Gorgadini, this evening, he'll begin with a just a brief definition of how he understands composure, and then he'll present us with the negative view of it, what our typical experience of being fragmented or distracted looks like uh, in our daily life as well as when we come to celebrate Mass. And then he'll focus uh, in the last paragraphs on the positive aspects of composure, and then in particular this final point that uh, is made in the introduction. It's the eternity deep within us.
that ultimately this is what, what we are seeking to get in touch with through stillness and silence. We have dwelling within us the divine. And so we want to still and silence all around us, especially at the time that we celebrate the Holy Eucharist and be focused upon the eternity and the, the quiet and the silence that dwells within in order that we can see more fully what God is doing for us in the Holy Eucharist. Okay, and so we'll pick up with his text with the words, in the spiritual life. Yes, I, Father Drew. Yeah, the, I'm always, whenever something sort of hits my ear, it's like, you know, that we're not really, you know, how it's been, so. Not really we're someone. Really alive, fully human, really someone. And it's sort of been, you know, sort of like, if people hear that as saying, oh, I'm not a very composed person, so I must not be real. <laughs> I'm not really a person yet. Yeah. But I, I think the beautiful thing about uh, our devotion to the Eucharist and to liturgy uh, here, especially at, at Mass, right. is the corollary of confessions. Mm -hmm. And the great number of confessions that, that the oratorians hear each week. And that you know real people are coming to confessions. Right. And it's like the fruit of prayer and liturgy reflection that then leads them to a deepening enlightenment yeah, the more concrete, genuine that experience becomes, yeah. then the more concrete and genuine and real the experience of the Holy Eucharist and the mercy of God and the Eucharist becomes for us. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's only real people who come to confession. Right, yeah. Yeah, and he's, I think he's, you know, what he's trying to get us to focus upon isn't so much the negative, but rather that positive that we have that which is most real within us. We carry the etern eternity in our very depths, and it is this reality that gives us life and makes us most, uh, most of all who we are that we want to be attentive to and not lose ourselves in the distractions and the chaos of day-to-day -day life. Okay, any other comments before we begin? All right. In the spiritual life, Silence is seldom discussed alone. Sooner or later, its companion composure demands our attention. Silence overcomes noise and talk. Composure is the victory over distractions and unrest. Silence is the quiet of a person who could be talking. Composure is the vital dynamic unity of an individual who could be divided by his surroundings, tossed to and fro by the myriad of happenings of every day. So it's not necessarily things that are sinful. It can be those things that are divine in our life that can just so fill our lives that we become distracted by them. And it becomes very attentive to draw our thoughts in uh, onto what is taking place at the altar. And it's only by establishing that deep silence and solitude in preparation for Mass then that we can have the composure to acknowledge what's taking place right before us, that our minds aren't somewhere else. So it would be the opposite of being fragmented or pulled apart, but rather pulled t together as we are listening. And so how he describes it here I think is important, a, a dynamic unity. It's not something static, and it's not something that we do in isolation. We're very much aware of the other, of God who we are encountering in the Holy Eucharist. And so it's not stillness or silence for its own sake. It's stillness and silence in order that we might be attentive to God, 
who's in our midst and now is going to draw us into the most intimate moment with him in the Holy Eucharist. What do we mean then by composure? As a rule, a man's attention <coughs> is broken into a thousand fragments by a variety of things and persons about him. His mind is restless. His feelings seek objects that are constantly changing. His desires reach out for one thing after another. His will is captured by a thousand intentions, often conflicting. He's harried, torn, self-contradictory. Composure in the opposite direction, rescuing man's attention from the sundry objects holding it captive and restoring unity to his spirit. It frees his mind from its many tempting claims and focuses it on one, the all-important. It calls the soul that is dispersed over myriad thoughts and desires, plans and intentions back to itself, reestablishing its depth. So the mind, the desires, and the will, all of these things, uh, if distracted, can pull us uh, away from what is all important, the presence of God at the altar. And so we have become busier and busier uh, as a culture and in our day-to-day -day life. We are exposed to so many things, so much noise about us. And again, many of those things are good and necessary. But when it comes to entering into this all-important relationship, all of these things have to be stilled in order that they, they don't pull us away from what is taking place. Any comments or questions so far on how he defines composure? Anything anyone would like to add? Father Drew. Okay. <laughs> 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 the distinction was like the, the antonym, you know, in, in the right. Greek. Uh, the words we, we talk about all the time, you know, uh, symbolic and diabolic, and, diabolic. Mm -hmm. and that the unity is, you know, something, something bringing us, drawing us into a synthesis, and that that's holiness is ultimately the same thing. And what tears us apart, and, you know, is a, a ripping of the, of the person right. is diabolic. Right. It's not the, the demons running around trying to, you know, tempt us and scare us. It's, it's we're from within. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, this composure and this dynamic unity isn't going to draw a person in on himself or herself. A person who has composure and has this deep self-awareness is also going to have the capacity to be powerfully aware of the other before him. That would make us more attentive to what's going on around us, where the needs are, where those, uh, there are those who are suffering and need attention. So if we're walking around in a constant state of distraction, we aren't going to see, to see that. Or if we are self-absorbed with a false kind of composure, we're not going to see it either. And so it has to arise out of this attentiveness to God that then allows us to be attentive to the others in our life, those that we are, he has given to us to love and to serve. The next paragraph, all things seem to disquiet man. The phenomena of nature intrigue him. They attract and bind. But because they are natural, they have a calming, collecting influence as well. 
It is much the same with those realities that make up human existence. Encounter and destiny, work and pleasure, sickness and accident, life and death. All make their demands on man, crowding him in and overwhelming him. But they also give him earnestness and weight. And so the, the natural things around us do uh, capture our attention. And again, not necessarily in a negative way. They are what make our life rich. They give our life weight. And they even uh, uh, lead us to engage in our life with a kind of earnestness. We see what it is to be a human being. We have certain responsibilities. And so we have to attend to those things in love. But they can also bind us to a certain extent. If our hearts aren't formed or if we are driven by our passions, they can become ends in themselves. And we can get caught up in them and lose ourselves as well as lose uh, our vision of the others around us. <coughs> what is genuinely disastrous, he says, is the disorder and artificiality of present-day existence. We are constantly stormed by violent and chaotic impressions. At once powerful and superficial, they are soon exhausted, only to be replaced by others. It's amazing. He was writing back in 1947, and it sounds like he could be writing for our own day, and you sort of wonder what in the world would he say about today in comparison to the 1940s and 50s. They are immoderate and disconnected the one contradicting, disturbing, and obstructing the other. At every step, we find ourselves in the claws of purposes and cross-purposes that inveigle and trick us. Everywhere, we are confronted by advertising that attempts to force upon us things we neither want nor really need. We are constantly lured from the important and profound to the distracting, interesting piquant. The state of affairs exists not only around, but within us. To a large extent, man lives without depth, without a center, in superficiality and chance. And so we can see that happening to us, that there are things that seem so interesting, that they capture our imagination and attention and pull us to them until the next greater thing comes along. We become bored with those things very quickly, and then have to move on to something that engages the imagination more fully. And so we are sort of lured into it. There's a seductive quality to it because these things are so stimulating. And I think what he would see probably in our culture that that has only been magnified, that uh, with the growth of technology, uh, our imaginations are really captivated, whether it's by movies or, or the newest phone or whatever it might be. And we can get lost in that kind of virtual reality uh, where we aren't engaged in. Uh, we were talking in the last group about, it's funny, he made reference to there will come a time when people communicate only through uh, like letters, typing you know, from a distance. And this is before texting came out. So 60, 70, 80 years earlier, he sort of saw what was coming, that this would be seen as the more immediate way of communicating, but it actually destroys real personal communication. It makes it easy for us, but in the end, it doesn't enrich us, but deprives us of something very important. Yes, Father Peter. I like the phrase, uh, a man without a center. 
He's not, because the one who doesn't possess himself can't truly say I, and he can't really say it to another you, right. you know. And so you are, you automatically lose that relationship if you don't have a center, you can't, you don't possess yourself. Right. And I think getting back to Father Drew's point at the beginning, you know, this idea of not being someone, not being real, I think that's what he's talking about. We can lose something that is essential to who we are as human beings. If we're living in that virtual reality that seems so exciting and interesting to us and that we move from one thing to another, we're never perhaps being attentive to that which is most important, what is going on within us and in our relationship with God and then in our relationship with, with each other. I think it's interesting. There's a, uh, there's a phenomenon in the natural world of simple beings that congregate together to uh, do complex behavior. It's called emergence. Mm -hmm. You see that in schools of fishes and ant colonies, bees, things like that. So very simple, very unintelligent beings. Mm -hmm. And I think more and more, the habits that, uh, that or what you see in human culture or lack thereof is similar to that of uh, ant colonies because we no longer are unique persons uh, as much. We can no longer say I, we're not entering a relationship. We're just following uh, in line with everything else, becoming less and less human along yeah. the way. That's an excellent point. In fact, in the next few sentences, he gets to exactly that in talking about animal behavior, that they're driven by instinct. And so they aren't capable of composure. You know, they do things and they are very focused on their basic needs, whereas we as human beings have this capacity to transcend ourselves, to be reflective, but often we will give that up. And so we are acting, in a sense, more like animals or less than human beings. We have this capacity for something far greater, but we often choose the lesser. Where did I leave off? Does anybody... Uh, no longer finding? Is yes. that, okay, no longer finding the essential within himself. He grabs at all sorts of stimulants and sensations. He enjoys them briefly, tires of them, recalls his own emptiness, and demands new distractions. He touches everything brought within easy reach of his mind by the constantly increasing means of transportation information, education, and amusement. But he doesn't really absorb anything. He contents himself with having heard about it. He labels it with some current catchword and shoves it aside for the next. He is a hollow man and tries to fill his emptiness with constant restless activity. He is happiest when in the thick of things, in the rush and noise and stimulus of quick results and successes. The moment quiet surrounds him, he is lost. And again, this I think captures much of our experience, you know, of, of hearing about things, uh, especially with like social media now, that so much passes through that news feed and so quickly. And so people most often only get the title of an article and so they know that something's going on, and they'll even share an article but not, have, not really have read it, or they'll comment on it having not read it, or write TLDR, too long, didn't read. And so it's, unless it's a picture with a little, little quote, they aren't willing to enter into it. <laughs> 
Are you all familiar with that? <laughs> Anything over like two or three paragraphs typically gets that TLDR. So it is, I, I heard about it, and uh, the communication is funny with, even here, uh, we'll joke about it, but we'll, we'll text because it makes it easy for us to get information back and forth to each other. But sometimes we'll text and you can hear the bing right out in the hallway. <laughs> the, the person sitting at their desk, desk, so rather than getting up and walking out and talking to them, it's easier to send a text to them. <laughs> Any comments or questions so far? For the true. <laughs> <laughs> But Ourselves on a fundamental level. Yeah, I do a lot of grocery shopping these days. <laughs> so I, I see a lot of that. You know, people walking around the grocery store not wanting to make eye contact with each other, or as you said, not comfortable with the silence, waiting in line to check out. And it's surprising when you actually engage people how things change for you. I'm at the deli counter now, and they recognize me and say, hi there, hi there. Uh, I forget what she called me, dear. Hi there, dear, how are you doing? And, and I tell and she'll give me a free piece of cheese, you know. <laughs> so it takes very little to engage. You know, all of a sudden you become this familiar face. You know, most people just want what they want, come in and get it and want to move on. And if you just take a few moments to acknowledge the other person, then suddenly you become friends. So we go through the same checkout line every time we chat with the young lady. Oh, where's your mom today? Oh, she's cold. We'll tell her, you know, I hope she's feeling better. You know, so life changes when you can just slow things down a little bit. Yes, I saw a hand go up and back. Well, it, whenever we talk about this, it reminds me of when I was still working in construction and when there were other people on the work site, we would always, we'd be playing radio all day long. And, um, and it, just, it just went on forever. Like there, every contractor had a radio and sometimes you would have like competing contractor teams. So you'd have like country in one room and rock in the other room <laughs> and talk radio in the other. And so you just one room to the other. And, uh, but then sometimes I would be all by myself on a site and so one day I'm there and I'm working and it's like super, super quiet. And this one guy walks in, he's like, hello, is anyone here? And I'm like, no. And uh, he's like, oh wow, it's so quiet. And I said, oh yeah, I like working in, when it's quiet. And he said, yeah, I really don't like myself enough for that. 
And I thought that was really, Powerful. like, I wasn't Honest. expecting that kind of insight in, in like, the random contractor that so, showed up that he could so instantly say, I don't like myself enough to work in the in quiet. And uh, it always, it, it stuck with me that whole time. It was really, really interesting that there's just, yeah, yeah, it was really, like, even work wasn't enough distraction. Like, even focusing on a task wasn't enough. It had to be, like, multiple layers of defense against your own self in order to function throughout the day. And then that would be perpetuated in the car, and then at home, and in the store. And it was, but it was a shocking amount of insight. And, and yeah, and honesty, too. It's interesting. Even if that was true, I don't think I'd say that out loud. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's pretty amazing. This is where you begin to see the power of the sacramental life and how healing it can be, and why perhaps we've moved to a more therapeutic culture uh, and away from the spiritual and the, the sacramental, that to, to have this encounter in the confessional, to bring oneself as one is in one's own poverty, and there to encounter the, the mercy and the forgiveness of God, uh, where we don't have to hide from the self, ourself, or, or uh, be downcast about our true identity, our poverty before God, that we know ourselves as loved, and then to encounter that love in an even more powerful way within the Eucharist, there's something deeply, deeply powerful and healing about that. And then to perpetuate it through adoration, where it is this quiet encounter with God, that you begin to see yourself through the eyes of love. And so to spend time daily before the Eucharist can be immensely healing, can bring, bring about this composure, but in, out of that composure then allow us to see God and encounter that healing love even more fully. But you have to become comfortable with that stillness and silence first and regain this composure to experience that in its fullness. Okay. Where did I leave off? The state. The state makes itself felt generally in the, in the spiritual life, in church services, in holy mass. Constant unrest is one of its earmarks. Then there is much gazing about, uncalled for kneeling down and standing up, reaching for this or that, fingering of apparel, coughing and throat clearing. Even when behavior remains outwardly controlled, an inner restlessness is clearly evident in the way people sing, listen, respond in their whole bearing. They are not really present. They do not vitally fill the room an hour. They are not composed. So to, to vitally fill the hour and to fill the room uh, is what we are seeking, to be there in our whole, with our whole self, our whole person engaged in all, all the actions that are taking place, the prayers that are being said, that we aren't distracted in any way. So even if we are present, we can be going through the motions, we can be singing the hymns and, and responding to the prayers, and yet not have composure, not fully aware of the awesomeness of what it is that we are participating in. I think when I first came into the church, I think I've mentioned that what captured me the most was the composure of the students when Mass was being celebrated for them, because the intense focus of their attention 
on what was going on at the altar and the prayers that were, were being said. Coming from a Protestant tradition you know, that lacked the sacramental worldview, I had never encountered that in my life before. You know, why was it that they were so focused on what was taking place there? And it was obviously because of the encounter w with God that was coming through, through the sacrament. And this is, you know, something I think that Guardini is trying, to, again, to open our eyes to. There's something precious here that what it takes to regain the stillness, silence, and composure is worth any effort that we, we would bring to it. Composure is more than freedom from scattered impressions and occupation. It is something positive. It is life in its full depth and power. Left to itself, life will always turn outward toward the multiplicity of things and events. And this natural inclination must be counterbalanced. For, consider for a moment the, the nature of respiration. It has two directions, outward and inward. Both are vital. Each is part of this elementary function of life. Neither is all of it. The living organism that only exhaled or inhaled would soon suffocate. Composure is the spiritual man's inhalation, by which from deep within he collects his scattered self and returns to his center. And it's a beautiful image, I think, that we are often fragmented because of the realities in our daily life. And the composure is a gathering in of ourselves, of all the things that have been pu pulled apart through the distractions of day-to-day -day life. And so uh, to have that time before <coughs> Mass where we quiet things down and begin to s slow our breathing, to be attentive to uh, what we are about to enter becomes very important for us. Not complicated either. It's a simple, simple, natural part of who we are as human beings, as natural as our, our breathing. And uh, so often in uh, the East, the prayer is connected with breathing for the same reason. The Jesus prayer that we've often talked about would often be done with the, the, the natural uh, aspects of our respiration. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That one becomes in intensely aware of the self and the full self becomes involved in that prayer. It's not just with our mind that we are saying it. We might even be saying it out loud, but the, when we can do it with our full self as much as possible, uh, we're going to be more fully engaged. Any comments? on these last two paragraphs. All right. Only the composed person is really someone. Only he can be seriously addressed as one capable of replying. Only he is genuinely affected by what life brings him, for he alone is awake, aware. And not only is he wide awake in the superficial sense of being quick to see and grab his advantage, this is a watchfulness shared also by birds and ants. What we mean is true awareness, that inner knowledge of the essential, that ability to make responsible decisions, sensitivity, readiness, 
and here we go, joie de vivre. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Forgive me. So only if it, if it is this superficial kind of awareness, then it, it, it's not composure. Even ants, as Father Peter was saying, and animals kind of have this awareness of their surroundings. It's only our capacity then to make decisions, to uh, you know, embrace our responsibilities, to be aware of others and of God. Uh, animals are s simply aware of what is before them at that moment. Once composure has been established, the liturgy is possible. Not before. It is not much use to discuss Holy Scripture the deep significance of symbols and the vitality of the liturgical renewal if the prerequisite of earnestness is lacking. Without it, even the liturgy deteriorates to something interesting, a passing vogue. To participate in the liturgy seriously, we must be mentally composed. But like silence, composure does not create itself. It must be willed and practiced. And so we, we often will begin in the wrong place, the wrong starting place. Uh, we often hear people talk about the renewal of the liturgy. What must we do to make the, the Mass more exciting or engaging uh, for others? And we will neglect, though, all the things that Guardini has set up to this point, as if somehow changing the externals alone, or even talking, he says, about liturgical renewal and symbols and their meaning, all of that will be for naught if we lack this sense of ourselves, this deep composure. What, what do those things ultimately mean? We might enter into the Mass with having a, a greater intellectual understanding of what's going on, but not be emotionally engaged in what's taking place, not be involved with our whole self in the event. Any thoughts? On this. Yes. I have more of a question. Mm -hmm. like, like in real time, what do you think the internal experience is of a person? Because if I'm sort of thinking it's sort of self-assessing, you know, like I find myself throughout the day sort of sorting. Right. Well, that's really important, and that really isn't. Right. You know, and I try obviously to use God as my point of reference. Right. Like through God's eyes, is this really important? Right. Uh, because you might have a boss that says it's but really it's not, and with all due respect, I'll kind of take care of it, but emotionally, how much of it will I take and carry? Right. And, you know, how do I orient it to God? I mean, like in real time, do you think that's kind of how, it's like a sifting and a sorting, I mean, I don't, where does it become more natural? I think it's our being oriented toward God that then affects how we are oriented towards everything else in our life. If we have composure and are intensely aware of that relationship, and the grace that flows to us from that relationship, then we are going to have the ability to discern those realities in our day-to-day -day life, those things that we have to be earnest about and attentive to. But what's important and has great value, what is perhaps not as significant. That's where we gain the, the power of discernment. So discernment is isn't just... an interior dialogue? No, no. <laughs> like I, I, think, I, I, I think it's the knowledge of faith. You know, it's, we are able to see with the eyes uh, of faith, and we aren't necessarily uh, intellectually going over everything that we are encountering in our day-to-day -day life. 
that through faith we come into contact with God, we are enriched with his grace, and so have the capacity to see what is good, true, and beautiful. And so we could process those realities without perhaps even having to think about them. We can see this is what needs to be attended to, attended to, or this person's need needs to be addressed. The other things, I can do what is good enough and set them aside. I don't have to invest all of myself in them because they don't have weight in the hierarchy right. of realities. And so I don't think we want to turn this into our uh, making it only into like this intellectual or rational exercise that somehow at mass we have to be thinking about those particular realities in order to enter into them. If we've fostered a kind of stillness and silence and we've rooted ourselves in prayer and our faith is deep, then if we've done that, then our perception, we're going to be composed that our perception then can be directed with the intenseness with which it should be at that moment on what's taking place at the altar. And that's how we are drawn in to that reality, mystically. I think so, mass, mass is the easy part. Well, sense. I think that's what he's saying here. You know, if we're only talking about music and everything else, then we really don't get it. That we're being drawn into something far greater than ourselves, and we're being drawn in it through, through our faith. And if we it, reduce it only to externals or our understanding of it alone, then we're, we can still be very diminished. Not that those things are unimportant, but if they're the the end of how we're approaching the liturgy, it can be stilted. So there are those who might celebrate the liturgy per perfectly, you know, in terms of the rubrics and everything else, and the music can be magnificent, but that doesn't mean that they are necessarily going to enter into it with a composed spirit, the one where the heart and mind have been formed and shaped by love and by faith, and so can enter into that fully. It can be a simple set ma mass daily said mass, but if it's said with that composure, it can be the richest experience in the world for us. Again, not that those things are unimportant, you know, beautiful music, all anything that would help us transcend ourselves and enter into those mysteries more fully, but they're not a guarantee in and of themselves that we will have that composure. I like her perspective on yeah. the real time. Right. Yeah. yeah. Trying to look mm -hmm. at it. And that's like so many things, it is kind of complicated, but at the same time, it's quite simple. Mm -hmm. um, that uh, the secular oratorians are they're truly oratorians, and the priests, as a congregation of the oratory, we live in community with prayer and charity. And that's to form us so that when we go out uh, of that communal experience, that character that's been formed by prayer and living together, that's carried with us. And uh, I think the Carmelites, I'm not sure, I can't remember if it was Therese or St. Teresa of Avila, they said it's, it's for, for her, it wasn't what happened in the 20 minutes of meditation, but what happened the other 23 hours and 40 minutes. The fruitfulness of that formative, for God may not have said a single word, right. but they, because of that time of reflection, they could see him everywhere. And, but it's a, it is a formative thing. It's not like turning off the switch. Uh, and the real time is, are we courageous or bold enough 
to dedicate time each day to sort of this holy leisure. And so for Ochi Masamta, right. a phrase for that. And uh, a holy leisure of just giving ourselves over to prayer and reflection. And then let God be present for us. Or let him be in charge. One feeds the other. Our, our celebration of Mass and then the perpetuation of that adoration that takes place through Eucharistic adoration, and then that should lead us then out to engage others with that same love. If adoration is only this kind of self-absorption, then it's not going to bear the fruit that I think he's talking about here. It should lead us to this radical awareness of the self-emptying and core love of Christ that then leads us to engage others with that, that same love. Any other thoughts or comments? I'm sorry, I lost my place again. Above all, above all, we must get to church early in order to tidy up inwardly. We must have no illusions about our condition when we enter the church. We must frankly face our restlessness, confusion, disorder. To be exact, we do not yet really exist as persons, at least not as persons God can address, ex expecting a fitting response. We are bundles of feelings, fancies, thoughts, and plans, all at cross-purposes with each other. The first thing to do, then, is to quiet and collect ourselves. We must be able to say honestly, now I'm here, I have only one thing to do, participate with my whole being and the only thing that counts, the sacred celebration. I am entirely ready. So it might seem simplistic to us to, to think in this way, but uh, it's often through the most simple things that I think we come to the greatest insight, that we would uh, truly gather ourselves in, that we can be composed for that moment, that I understand I'm distracted, but I'm here now to participate in the all-important thing. And so I'm here and, and ready fully to engage this re reality dis despite what I'm experiencing within. So even this acknowledgement of that truth and that attempt to gather ourselves together is the beginning of composure, the beginning of that uh, tidying up inwardly. When he says the only thing that counts, you can see he's kind of alluding to Martha and Mary. That you can say that Mary is the composed one. Martha's worried about many things. She's fragmented. And it recalls to me the experience of uh, my own experience of coming here and being trained by Father Stephen as an altar server and thinking about how it has affects my participation in Mass. I'm so distracted. I think about what I'm doing next and how slowly I, it was like actually an uh, easier way for me to enter into Mass. Uh, being there serving was uh, actually, we went along with being composed, the two came together, and it's kind of fun to see that in all the uh, students that are being trained now as altar servers, that one said to me, you know, you're right, after a while, uh, it actually, you become a lot, it's a lot easier to focus on the Mass and to be attentive, and it's no longer a distraction to, to serve at the altar in that way. Right. I think that's probably a yeah. gen everyone's general experience in just going to Mass. <laughs> First, it's a challenging thing, it's, it's a you're wondering, well, what's going to happen next? Do I stand? Do I kneel? We're used to that now with most of us as Catholics. But then eventually you should be able to enter into that and become more like Mary uh, in, that, in that process. Yeah, it becomes a very natural reality for us. 
what did they say back when I was a server? Great, great ser serving after every mass. So it's, uh, it's inside joke between Father Drew and I. <laughs> it's only behind me to tell the story. Go ahead. So, you know, at Pine's Chapel, you know, people would leave, be leaving, and you know, one first time would say, oh, very nice sermon. This is, I love coming to the oratory. Excellent sermons. You know, wonderful sermons. And uh, always consistently good sermons. And so uh, Father David was standing nearby because he was a certain server. And I said to him, that's, that's nice that people feel nourished like that. And he goes, oh, I think he misheard. They were saying, consistently good serving. Serving. <laughs> <laughs> so that would be compliment each other at the masses. Nice serving. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoy your serving. Yeah. Actually, when, you become, when it becomes natural, you should become almost invisible up in the altar. You don't want to become a distraction for, for others. And that's, that's what it would mean to be composed, I think, as a server. Uh, okay, let's move on here. Once we attempt this, we realize how terribly distraught we are. Our thoughts drag us in all directions to the people we deal with, families, friends, adversaries, to our work, to our worries, to public events, to private engagements. We must pull our thoughts back again and again and again, repeatedly calling ourselves to order. And when we see how difficult it is, we must not give up, but realize only the more clearly that it is high time we return to ourselves. So we should have no illusions that this is uh, an easy thing for us to do, nor should we become discouraged, I think, when we struggle with the, the reality within us, that this is something that can take years to, to form the mind and the heart that we can enter into the Mass well. But it, is it possible at all, he asked? Isn't man hopelessly given over to outward impressions, to the press of his desires and his un, own unrest? The question brushes the ultimate, the difference between man and animal. An animal is really bound by these things, unfree though, we must, haste, must hasten to add, protected by the orderly disposition of its instincts. An animal is never truly distracted. In the exact sense we are using, it can be neither distracted nor composed. It has not yet been confronted with this either or. Its own nature determines its existence and requires it to be in order. Only man can be distracted because something in his spirit reaches beyond mere nature. The spirit can turn to the things of the world and lose itself there. The same spirit can also overcome distraction and fight its way through to composure. There is something mysterious about the spirit, something relevant to eternity. Absolute rest and composure is eternity. Time is unrest and dispersion. Eternity is rest and unity. Not inactivity or boredom. Only fools connect these, things, connect these with it. Eternity is the brimming fullness of life in the form of repose. Something of eternity is deep within us. Let's call it by the beautiful name the spiritual masters use, the ground of the soul, or the peak of the spirit. 
the in, in the first, it appears as the repose of the intrinsic of depth, and the second as the tranquility of remoteness and the heights. The seed of eternity is within me, and I can count on its support. With its aid, I can step out of the endless chase. I can dismiss everything that does not belong here in God's house. I can grow still and whole so that I can honestly reply to his summons, Here I am, Lord. Now, I think this is the most important paragraph of the text, that there is eternity uh, present here and deep within us. And it is this that, through composure, we are coming into contact with once again. And we can rely upon its support, that our struggle for composure our struggle to fight the distractions of our day-to-day -day life isn't something that we uh, engage in on our own. It's by the grace of God, but also God dwelling within, the eternal dwelling within, that we find the strength to be attentive to what is all important. And then also to reply to God's call and to say, here am I. Yes. I would say, I would build on that and say that not only is this last paragraph most important, the last word is the most important. Everything else is just uh, introspective. If it's just by itself, just becoming composed, just for the sake of being composed. Mm -hmm. But for the last word of this, here I am, Lord. Mm -hmm. It's all because we're being uh, saying to another, uh, we're an I because there is a thou, mm -hmm. that uh, this matters at all. Right. Then we can truly worship because we are composed. Excellent. Yes. I've been learning the, the depth and the, uh, the grace of ora et labora, prayer and work, and how the two words you know, share uh, a commonality with it. And the, and the notion of, the, of your prayer lives being one of utilized with discipline, and that our work be done prayerfully, that we enter into this eternal conversation with God through prayer, and to take that as difficult as it can be in the practical into our lives so that when you encounter somebody and they're speaking, even if they're saying negative things, what you hear is Yahweh, Yahweh. You, know, you, you hear the, the God's breath coming out of their, of their words and, and recognizing the, the, the divinity that surrounds all of us in every moment of our lives, but that we walk around in our days with blinders on, not aware to see it, but taking this notion of, of prayer and work and bringing that to every aspect of our lives is really very um, exposing, but it's also very um, uh, graceful. Right. I think that is part of the beauty of, of his reflection. It does allow us then to see the eternity in all that is around us. If we're able to see it in its preeminent form within the Eucharist and how God comes to us through the sacraments, then we begin to see him in the other and in all, all things around us. So we begin to see the world through the, the lens of Christ's eyes rather than through our distracted or distorted vision. Any other thoughts? Yes. I liked Father Drew's reflection at the very beginning that the best way it seems like to achieve that this whole thing 
this confession right before Mass. It, it really does quiet the soul. It takes so many distractions away that to, to be rid of your sin is like the biggest distraction, at least for me, that, you know, because that's what's always buzzing around in my head is like, oh my goodness, you know, I, this, that, and the other, you know, but once you rid yourself of that, it just seems like it, the whole the quiet just is, is so much easier to... I think that's the wisdom of the saints, too, and the wisdom of St. Philip Neri. You know, how was he to renew the, the faith of the people in Rome? And he did it through the confessional. You know, it was through this encounter with God's mercy that this deeper awareness of self and God uh, became more present to them, and then they were able to enter into the Eucharist and have it be a far more fruitful experience and transformative experience for them. But it's something as simple as that, sitting in a confessional all day, waiting for people to come. So in some ways, I think we've lost our, our vision as, as Catholics in that regard, that what is our greatest strength, we've often pushed to the margins, you know, as something that we don't have time for. Confessions would be the perfect example of that. You know, if you have it for 20 minutes a week, it's not really communicating the significance of what Father Drew said at the beginning, or what, what this reality has for our life, or how we participate in the Holy Eucharist. How is it that we regain that peace of mind and heart and composure than to encounter him intimately in the Eucharist if it's not offered to us through confession? Was confession offered before Mass, like in the early church, was that usually when it, it was offered? Like that. There's a violence. Right? 
that, that it's brought yeah. to us. And unless you go off and live in a cave somewhere, right. uh, yeah. you can't. Violence is a violence to self, and that's what Thomas Merton called it. And he said, "Television is the destroyer of contemplation. You know, it does violence to the soul." And I, I think we probably see that happening to ourselves. And a lot more people, probably in their more honest moments, would say exactly what you were saying: "Let's just, you know, throw it in the garbage and be done with it." But then people would be screaming at you. We're not getting back to them in 10 seconds. <laughs> so I think the, the point there was the humility that comes along with acknowledge that seed of eternity. Mm -hmm. That doesn't puff us up. Right. We have to see ourselves as God sees us, funny little creatures that we are. Yeah. 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 Very good. But composure is the solution. Right. That's the remedy. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's so important that Guardini will continue to develop this in uh, uh, the next couple of uh, reflections that we'll be looking at, com uh, composure and action and composure and participation. So he really does work hard to develop this for us. So that's what we'll be looking at in the next couple of months. Okay. Thank you. Beautiful group and beautiful discussion. Okay. And so why don't we uh, stand together and pray the prayer of St. Philip and then conclude with the closing prayer. And together, let us pray. Look down from heaven, Holy Father, from the loftiness of that mountain to the loneliness of this valley, from that harbor of quietness and tranquility to this calamitous sea. And now that the darkness of this world hinders no more those kindly eyes of thine from looking clearly into all things, look down and visit, O most diligent keeper, this vineyard which thy right hand planted so much labor, anxiety, and peril. To thee then we fly, from thee we seek for aid. To thee we give our full selves unreservedly. Thee we adopt as our patron and defender, undertake the cause of our salvation, protect thy clients. To thee we appeal as our leader, rule thine army, fighting against the assaults of the devil. To thee, kindest of pilots, we give up the rudder of our lives, steer this little ship of thine, and place as thou art on high, keep us off all the rocks of evil desires, that with thee for our pilot and guide, we may safely come to the port of eternal bliss. Amen. The Lord be with you. And God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks. Thank you, God. And our closing hymn is on Jordan's bank. On Jordan's bank the Baptist cried, announces that the Lord is nigh. Awake and hearken, for he brings glad tidings of the King of kings. Then cleanse ye every soul from sin, make Prepare we
Oh,